Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk. Thank you for joining us for this half hour. Now, let's talk. Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk. I'm Tracy Morgan. Always nice to have you with us this time of day. This is our half hour that we get to talk to great professionals in and around the area. And uh, among the great professionals that we have in this area, of course, is the professionals at the Butler Health System. Now, I know we've been talking to the Butler Health System for quite some time in various aspects in our day. So today we're going to spend a full half hour with Dr. David Roddinghouse. And yes, we're going to talk COVID, but we're going to talk vaccines. We're going to talk about the lowered numbers. Are they lower? Are they not? We have some extra questions as well to ask Dr. Roddinghouse. Now, of course, Dr. Roddinghouse is the uh, chief medical officer and vice president of medical affairs with the Butler Health System. So let me remind you of this as well before I welcome him into the program. If you want to listen to this program in its entirety, what you can do is go back onto our website of WISR680.com. You pick programs, then let's talk, and that's where you're going to find this particular segment with Dr. Roddinghouse, okay? So you can join us uh, throughout our our time here or after we are done. All right, Dr. Roddinghouse, nice to talk to you again today. Thank you for being with us. Good morning, Tracy. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, I do want to talk about vaccines. I want to talk about lowered numbers. All of that I do want to get to. But where I want to start today with you is talking about those that are, in a sense, behind the scenes. I have talked to you so much, Dr. Love. I've talked to the the chief nursing officer, if you will. So we've been talking to those that we always kind of see in the hospital when we would go into the hospital. But how about those that we don't see? Housekeeping, dietary, those working at the desks behind the walls, if you will. Can you talk about those departments for a moment and what they go through? Sure, sure. And and I really welcome uh, the chance to talk about, you know, folks that, uh, like you said, they may not be, um, you know, out front uh, seen sort of directing patient care and some of the images and photos that you've seen, you know, throughout the pandemic. Um, the classic photo you see is a healthcare worker with, uh, you know, a lot of personal protective equipment on um, and, uh, you know, more tied into uh, uh, bedside care. Um, the amount of work it takes, as you know, to, to run, you know, any business, let alone healthcare, takes a lot of background, um, you know, support and people that may not be uh, the most visible, you know, to the public or, you know, to say patrons or, or you know, patients in our case that, that come in. Um, but it's impossible to give appropriate credit to all the folks that make the hospital run. Um, you know, so bedside care is one part uh, of what we do, but the amount of work, the amount of effort, uh, the amount of diligence that goes in to provide, you know, safe, effective, uh, meaningful bedside care, um, you know, it's it's easy to lose track of, of everything that goes into it. So, you know, from appropriate, you know, stocking of uh, supplies, um, you know, meals that are provided, not just to patients and their families, but to staff. Um, it's tireless work, and it's people that work around the clock. And, um, you know, they care every bit as much about their jobs and take as much pride in what they do. And it shows, it reflects, um, you know, in, in every aspect. And then, you know, among the, the certainly the, the riskier parts of this job is, you know, going into rooms or going into, you know, critically ill patients' rooms and, you know, providing cleaning, cleaning surfaces, um, you know, making sure, again, things are stocked, that the appropriate equipment is in there. So, you know, our housekeeping, our dietary staff, our facilities, 
our maintenance. Um, you know, and this has been played out across the country and certainly across the world. The amount of work that they have done to, you know, be able to tee up the provision of, you know, great and effective bedside care as things constantly shifted and as the target of how to isolate, you know, uh, shifting amounts of units, space, bed availability, all those things, um, it certainly takes uh, more than a village. It takes a monumental effort. And it's impossible, again, to thank all those folks who, you know, may not be visible in the pictures and, and may not be, um, you know, on the radio like I am. But uh, to try to think that we can thank them enough by, you know, uh, just words is, is impossible. But they have truly been invaluable. They've led the way, and they've certainly answered the call every single time we've, uh, you know, needed something from them. And they've been as innovative, as adaptable and work just as hard as anybody else throughout this uh, time. And I also don't want to forget anyone, but I do think of housekeeping often because do they have to be in, in like the hazmat looking suits whenever they're changing those rooms? Uh, it certainly depends on, you know, the patient and the isolation that the, pa- the patient is in. But, yeah, you'll see them, you know, gown and glove and put appropriate protection on, you know, to protect themselves. So, you know, they're going into situations where um, they're at risk. And, uh, you know, again, they can't be thanked enough for taking that risk on, especially in the early days uh, of the pandemic when we were still really learning and accumulating a lot of information, how best to protect ourselves. And, um, you know, now that we've got a a year of knowledge under our belt, um, you know, we're all more comfortable with it. But uh, it's hard to describe the feelings of uncertainty and uneasiness that affected everybody, you know, let alone that group, uh, you know, that does housekeeping. Um, And again, in the early days of, of the pandemic, there was a lot of uncertainty certainty. And, you know, there had to be a lot of trust uh, among them that they were given the proper equipment, the proper instructions, and the proper support to do their job safely and effectively. And also, I just want to make a point about uh, maintenance, materials management. I know names have shifted in that department, but part of their role is to make sure that the respirators are working. Isn't that one of the things that they have to take care of? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, they, they you know, on, on an average uh, day, not in the middle of a pandemic, um, you can imagine the amount of equipment, the amount of technology, the number of resources that are used to do good patient care. You know, from very complex procedures to, you know, what we would deem routine care, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but then, you know, you put in uh, a situation where all of a sudden you have to create, uh, you know, beds and access and go into units that have to be, you know, reshaped, redone, uh, amendable to, you know, good patient care and good flow of processes, um, you know, again, from housekeeping to maintenance to facilities to, um, you know, our biomedical engineers, it is uh, it is an all-encompassing, you know, and certainly all-hands-on-deck situation. And, you know, our, our group has certainly uh, answered the call, risen to the occasion, and, uh, in fact, um, you know, in, in all cases have exceeded uh, what would normally be expected of them and, and have, you know, really risen to the challenge and, you know, met all of those needs and all of those expectations, even though we may have done one thing one day and, and gain more information and change the next day or the next week. Um, so it's it's been a, a constant process. But again, I just can't say enough about the dedication of the folks we have in our system. And it, it's, you know, it's all 
um, on pride taking care of the community and wanting to do what is best for the patients that come to Butler Health System. And one more question about this area, and we'll move on to vaccines, but do you have your volunteers working? I I know my sister back in the day was a candy striper. Uh, You have the gift shop. You have volunteers that are a big part of the hospital. Are they working right now, or are you holding off at this point? Yeah, so we, we have a few in. Um, we actually, um, you know, moved them out uh, for a period of time, uh, especially in the spring. So uh, we do have some, you know, here and there, but for the most part, we have tried to keep that, you know, population of folks uh, out of the hospital and protect them. Most of them, you know, are, are retirees and uh, uh, certainly at higher risk of severe COVID infection than, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, other folks that are that are employed and, and not volunteers. So um, we try to be cautious to protect everyone that we can, you know, especially as they, you know, come in um, uh, and provide uh, any type of work in the hospital. And that is one group that we've, you know, we greatly appreciate. Uh, We are better with them here, but we have to be very cognizant of the risks associated with, uh, you know, perhaps um, their experience and, um, uh, you know, where they are in their lives at this point in time. And again, we just want to thank everyone with the Butler Health System, knowing that you have multiple locations with the campus, but we just wanted to focus for a few minutes with, with those that were in the hospital walls. Um, I, I know I'd be remiss if I don't say hello to the accounting department since uh, I know they're in a whole different location, uh, not in the hospital walls anymore, but many visits there with somebody I knew that worked there. All right, so let's go on to vaccines. Layman's terms, right? What's the holdup? What's the delay? We had projected numbers that a lot more people nationally would be vaccinated, inoculated at this point, and those numbers have not reached the projection. So what is the delay? I think the the lack of um, a plan that is rolled out in a similar way to every state certainly creates variability in how quickly, you know, states can mobilize vaccine and get vaccine out. Um, So, you know, the distribution of vaccine goes from the federal government and Operation Warp Speed uh, to the states, and then the states do have um, ability to direct vaccine, uh, you know, to where they want it. Uh, My understanding is that vaccine supply right now is strained, so there is not an unlimited number of vaccines available for distribution, you uh, you know, across the the country, let alone across the state. So, you know, I, I don't know all the nuances of what may be holding it up and, um, you know, where the storage facilities are, how vaccine is being distributed. Um, what we're going to do is just focus on giving every single dose of vaccine that we receive uh, into the arms of the folks that, um, you know, we have to deem as the, the most needed initially. And as you saw, you know, it was healthcare workers initially uh, that were categorized as 1A uh, by the state. Um, you know, some states did the same, other states did not. But we uh, have met that challenge and, um, you know, we feel pretty solid on, on our ground on vaccinating 1As. And, you know, we will just continue to push to vaccinate as quickly as we get vaccine in. And I want to ask you about 1A and those that are within 1A, but can you quickly explain the tiered system? How many sections do we have to go through before the general population gets offered the vaccine? 
Sure. So um, what the state initially did, uh, you know, or the, the Commonwealth um, did was they created phase 1A. And as soon as vaccine was distributed and available to healthcare systems, um, they targeted healthcare personnel. And they targeted initially, you know, hospital-based uh, healthcare personnel. And then that quickly grew to, um, you know, include healthcare personnel that are out in, in similar, you know, high-risk positions. So, you know, uh, dentists, chiropractors, hygienists, therapists, uh, you know, visiting nurses, people that have uh, very intimate and high-risk contact, um, you know, with, with patients. Um, they also did separate targeting of long-term long care facility residents, nursing homes and the like, because that population, as we all know, uh, was hit very hard. And that is where many, many of the, you know, thousands of deaths uh, in this country uh, have occurred. So uh, the more susceptible folks, um, you know, I think was a very good idea to try and target to try to mitigate some of the spread in those facilities and give them some protection. Um, so we, that was the original 1A. Uh, it was upon healthcare systems to vaccinate, you know, those populations and really bring the vaccine into the hospital and, uh, you know, try to protect its workers as quickly uh, as they possibly could. Um, that has expanded. Uh, so the, the first expansion really was that the, the Commonwealth said, um, we want you to target at least 10 percent of your vaccine supply to non-affiliated and non-system-employed uh, you know, providers out in, in the community. And that's where the expansion began to, you know, really independent physician offices, uh, pharmacy techs, and, you know, as you can imagine, numerous health, uh, health professions that are, you know, perhaps not employed by a health system that are independent, but still take care of patients every single day. Phase one. 1A. It includes quite a few people. And as you mentioned, the medical field, dentists, long care facilities. Uh, but there are also individuals in this 1A section that are people over 65, 16 to 24 with high risk conditions like cancer, heart failure, chronic kidney disease. I know I can only ask about the Butler Health System because there are other businesses helping other locations. So how does this work with the Butler Health System offering vaccines during this phase one. If people are not in the hospital or in a long-term care facility, I know that's not your focus, but if they're not in the hospital, do they contact you? Do you contact them? How is it that you're distributing beyond the medical field within the hospital walls? Yes, a great question, and that is going to be uh, a big challenge. So the situation we sit in now is, uh, you know, the initial 1A category that we talked about. And then yesterday the state announced that, uh, or the Commonwealth announced, that also included in that 1A would be people 65 and older, um, no matter if they have, you know, underlying medical conditions or not. And then uh, 16 to 64 years of age with a, a host of uh, medical problems, um, you know, really targeting high-risk conditions for severe disease from uh, COVID-19. So what we can do at this point in time is continue to request as much distribution of vaccine from the state as possible. Um, there's a timeline and there's a particular day of the week that we have to submit those requests. It just happened to be yesterday. And what we do is we track every single dose. Those doses go into a reporting system by the state. And then the state, you know, tries to fulfill 
uh, our orders and our requests for vaccine based on not just the number that we're given, but how we want to scale up. Um, where we sit right now is that we're awaiting uh, a more definitive plan from the state about how they plan to mass vaccinate. So as a system, we've been able to, you know, in a single day, give over 400 doses, up to about 500 doses of vaccine. But it requires a lot of coordination. It requires a lot of people. And we just don't know at this point in time if we are going to be relied upon by the Commonwealth to mass vaccinate our population. So we only have a, a finite supply of vaccine in our hands right now. We don't want to hold on to it. We don't want to store it. So what we did, based on the information from yesterday, is expand into this you know, group, this additional uh, cohort of people in 1A. And what we will do is open up request for vaccine online and then uh, you know, also enable folks that meet the criteria to work through their primary care physicians or their health care providers to you know, essentially get in line and to make a request for vaccine and then schedule them from there. The challenge right now is that we only have so much vaccine. We don't know how the state will be able to supply us in the future if that amount will significantly go up or if perhaps they're going to push out vaccine to, you know, retail pharmacies and the like to extend vaccination, um, you know, capability and to have multiple sites where vaccine is being distributed. Where we stand now is we want to be a very capable, ready, and willing partner with the state and with our local, you know, government commissioners, emergency management agency, and really lead the way in terms of vaccinating the public. It certainly meets our mission as a system, but we're just waiting for more information and waiting to see how this will be scaled up um, and how much includes health systems such as ours. Is there going to be a database for identification? When you mentioned that the doses go into a reporting system by the state, is there going to be a database where you say Jane Doe does have the vaccine, so Jane Doe doesn't go to a couple of different locations to get the vaccine? That should be sorted out in the system. Um, you know, it, it certainly indicates who the manufacturer of the vaccine is. So right now there's two that have emergency use authorization and the timing of the vaccines is a little bit different. So Pfizer is day one and, and you know day 21. Um, and then the Moderna vaccine is day one and then day 28. So there is record keeping, you know, collected demographics and those folks that get the vaccine um, optimally will go back to the original site where they received uh, the first dose. Uh, but at this point, it's not advisable to say get the Pfizer vaccine first and then Moderna vaccine second. You should stick to the same vaccine. Um, in terms of what's collected, it's primarily demographics, but it's also, you know, location, uh, which vaccine they received and when their next appointment um, is. Do you think that so, it's important to stay within your county lines, like not go to Mercer County or Beaver County or Allegheny County, just stay in Butler County? Well, I think it depends on the need. Um, you know, we certainly have to focus on our community because of our limited supply. 
But should the state choose to, you know, continue to push out uh, very large doses and, and uh, you know, vaccine supply to health systems, um, we will certainly work with our, you know, neighboring and partnering health systems to make sure that every community is supplied vaccine and that we can scale up. So right now, really, the, the way it's functioning is um, each health system is supposed to take care of their community. Now, there's obviously overlapping, you know, uh, service areas. People from one county come to Butler. People from Butler County go into Allegheny County. So it, it's really hard to draw those lines. What we're trying to do is just really prioritize, um, you know, our community, the patients that we serve uh, as a primary service area, really, and, you know, to get those folks in. Um, again, the challenge is we only have so much vaccine that we can give out. And we would love to have, uh, you know, really a flush supply of vaccines so that we can continue to bring people in as quickly as we can. How important is it to get the second dose, not to skip the second dose? It's vital. So um, that's where the, the data uh, on Moderna and Pfizer around the, you know, 94, 95% uh, protection from, um, you know, symptomatic illness with COVID-19 comes from. And then some of the early data suggested 100% protection against, uh, you know, serious illness and hospitalization. So it's vital for now, um, unless some new information comes forward. But the way the trials were designed and the, the proof behind the vaccines is in getting two doses. So everyone should get two doses of vaccine. Dr. David Roddinghouse with the Butler Health System. I'm looking at my time and I'm going to run out of time very quickly with you. So let me move on to the lowered numbers that we keep hearing about. I just talked to somebody this morning that said, you know, it's very conflicting to me because I hear on national news how we're at a worse time than we've ever been. But yet, if you look at numbers, especially locally, they seem to be coming down. So what's your viewpoint on this? Are are we coming down in the way of numbers locally and nationally? What's happening right now? Well, what you see is some asymmetry across the nation. So, you know, Southern California in particular has had a very difficult time, um, you know, in some cases has met or exceeded hospital capacity. So you know, in a pandemic and with spread of a respiratory virus like this, there's not going to be even spread in every, you know, part of the globe, let alone every part of the country. And we've certainly seen that in southwestern Pennsylvania. So where we were spared, you know, big surges in the spring and other more densely populated areas like New York City were hit very hard. Um, you know, our surge came as, uh, you know, essentially people were pushed indoors because of change of weather, um, you know, perhaps some, some gatherings going on. And, you know, really what, what shifted was um, the change in weather here and people being inside more than you had Thanksgiving, you know, than Christmas. So in Inevitably, we were going to see a lot more cases, and unfortunately, that results in a lot more hospitalizations and deaths. Um, we peaked here uh, just about the same time as our you know, other regional partners and, and systems uh, right after Christmas, right around New Year's. And you know, so far, um, you know, luckily, we have not seen a big bump since Christmas. I think we still have to keep an eye on that. So overall, our case for, you know, our positives per day in our county and in our region are going down. Um, I think it gives hope. I think it gives promise. But we have to remain vigilant because 
there's you know other um, possibilities and and other uh, you know potentials for cases to go up. If you know people don't distance and mask and you know continue the simple things that work. And the other possibility is you know some of these new variants that are more contagious and more easily spread. Um, you know don't, no doubt they're in our area, but if they become dominant strains. Uh, then the number of our cases will go up, and that will result in more hospitalizations uh, and you know more uh, very sick patients as well. So there's reason to you know be optimistic, especially with rollout of vaccine. But at this point in time, it's no reason to you know uh, drop in terms of our vigilance and in, in how you know careful we have to be until we really start to mass vaccinate our population. I had someone ask me a question just recently. They were asking about the lower numbers locally with the Butler Health System. Again, I know you're not the only health system in our county, so I'll just ask with the Butler Health System, but they asked, are the numbers lowering because people are just getting better? Is it because we are still seeing deaths? Is it because the inoculations are working? Or is it because some people have been transferred out? And I'd like you to talk about the transfers because that, again, has come up with individuals thinking that people are being transferred just because someone has COVID. We are not transferring COVID patients out. We are keeping um, you know COVID patients patients here, even the very critically ill. Um, our regional agreements were only a very specific uh, subset of patients. Those were uh, those that require what's called ECMO, which is a, essentially a heart-lung bypass machine, um, would be transferred out so that we could consolidate resources with our you know big tertiary systems downtown. But we are not sending COVID patients out of the hospital. Um, what's happened with our, our inpatient census, which I think is really what you're getting at, the number of COVID-positive patients we have that are sick enough to be in the hospital. A number of things have happened, you know, to, to push those numbers down. Um, number one, we know how to better take care of these patients, and we know what therapies work and, um, you know, what doesn't. So we've become much better at that. So people are getting better. Uh, you know, mortality rates have dropped. Um, we also, unfortunately, saw a large number of deaths into November, um, many more than we've ever seen, uh, especially in, in any recent year in December, uh, about three to four times that which we typically see in a month, and then several in January. So unfortunately, many people have died in our facility that just couldn't be effectively treated with COVID-19, and that has dropped our, our inpatient census as well. We're also more aggressive at sending patients home. A lot of patients can recover at home once they stabilized, and sometimes we send them home on oxygen or other treatments. Um, we've also become better at getting patients into, uh, you know, skilled nursing facilities and other congregate care sites that are taking COVID-positive patients and, you know, have a, a COVID-positive census within them. So there's a lot of factors involved that has, you know, driven down the in-hospital census, uh, but transfers are not one of those factors. We're just not doing that. Neither is any of the other hospitals in the region unless they're, you know, just too small that they can't do higher levels of care. Um, but Butler Health System has not, you know, uh, uh, taken part in that practice, and that really is very rare across southwestern Pennsylvania. When you release someone from the Butler Hospital, are they COVID-free, or are they just well enough to go home? And, and if that's the case, that they're just well enough to go home but still have COVID, are some going to long-term care facilities? It depends. So it depends on how long they've been in the hospital. It depends on how long they've had the illness. And there's different isolation or quarantine criteria, uh, you know, for, for patients. 
patient. So a patient that is very sick and uh, you know critically and requires hospitalization, their time to where they're considered no longer contagious by you know DOH criteria is 20 days. Um, so, you know, it, it, it all depends on, uh, you know, the needs of the patient, how long they've had COVID, and then really the stability of the patient. So, you know, some patients we will send home eight, nine, ten days into the illness, realizing they have several more days of quarantine. But if they can safely isolate at home, have some help at home, or care for themselves, we will send them home. Uh, you know, same to congregate care facilities. If they need oxygen, if they need other, you know, therapies that can be done outside the hospital, uh, we will send them, you know, to those facilities. And, you know, it all is situation dependent. It depends on the patient, how long they've been sick, you know, their recovery time, et cetera, um, you know, whether or not they're still con uh, considered contagious. So um, it varies, uh, you know, in, in many cases, but I would say uh, the typical scenario is that the patient is no longer um, contagious or has a couple more days of contagiousness, uh, but can safely isolate, you know, quarantine at home and then recover uh, either at home or, or in a facility capable of handling COVID-positive patients. And last question for you, Dr. Roddinghouse. I'm seeing people starting to plan. I've seen people starting to plan for summer, maybe events for like later in the fall. Are we there yet? I know you mentioned we're not done with this yet. We still have to be vigilant, but yet we still have to move on. So I wanted to get your thoughts. I think it's always good to have uh, something to look forward to, right? Um, you know, th there's been, you know, so much bad news around COVID. It's been a, a really, really difficult year. We will get out of this eventually. Um, I can't tell you exactly when, except that the faster we mass vaccinate our population and, uh, you know, the more we're able to protect people, the better return to normalcy we will have. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you when we will achieve, you know, what would be considered, uh, you know, herd immunity or protection of our population from vaccination or from natural infection. But um, my hope is that it will be achieved, you know, sometime uh, in 2021. And I'm certainly hoping by summer. Uh, I think it will be some time until we return to, uh, you know, absolute normalcy where we're not masking, not distancing uh, in certain situations. But, you know, being a sports fanatic, uh, I really want to be back in a football stadium watching a game and uh, <laughs> enjoying myself uh, or going on vacation. So I think it's okay for people to plan. But as we saw in 2020, I think you have to be prepared that plans will be canceled, plans will change, you know, circumstances will be different uh, if and when you get there. So some flexibility while having positivity, uh, you know, really, I think should be the initial approach to 2021. Having a plan A, B, and C, always a good thing, always a good thing. Dr. David Roddinghouse, Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Medical Affairs with the Butler Health System. As always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Tracy. Appreciate your support and that of the community. And folks, thank you very much for joining us for Let's Talk. You can always listen to this again in its entirety on our website, on our podcast page, wisr680.com. Pick programs, Let's Talk, and then look for the Butler Health System. I'm Tracy Morgan with Let's Talk. The information and opinions shared on this program are solely those of our guests and do not necessarily represent those of WISR, the Butler County Radio Network, or its staff and employees.